When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hi, I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And on today's New Statesman podcast, we're joined by David Gork, former Chief Secretary to the Treasury and a New Statesman columnist, to talk about the impact of the budget. And then you ask us, why did Tory MPs vote to keep dumping sewage into rivers and beaches? And is it a gift to the Lib Dems in the Blue Wall? So we're recording the morning after the Chancellor Rishi Sunak delivered his budget in which he announced a real terms rise in spending for all departments with an extra £150 billion worth of spending on public services. Madam Deputy Speaker, this budget is about what this government is about. Investment in a more innovative, high-skilled economy because that is the only sustainable path to individual prosperity. World-class public services because these are the common goods from which we all benefit. Backing business, because our future cannot be built by government alone, but must come from the imagination and drive of our entrepreneurs. Help for working families with the cost of living, because we will always give people the support they need and the tools to build a better life for themselves. And levelling up. Shadow Chancellor Rachel Reeves, filling in for Keir Starmer, who had tested positive for COVID-19, so had to stay at home, responded by saying his high taxation and other measures would not help people through rising inflation and the cost of living crisis they face over winter, accusing him of living in a parallel universe. Families struggling with the cost of living crisis, businesses hit by a supply chain crisis, those who rely on our schools and our hospitals and our police... They won't recognise the world that the Chancellor is describing. They will think that he is living in a parallel universe. The Chancellor in this budget has decided to cut taxes for banks. So, Madam Deputy Speaker, at least the bankers on short-haul flights sipping champagne will be cheering this budget today. And the arrogance after taking £6 billion out of the pockets of some of the poorest people in this country, expecting them to cheer today for £2 billion given to compensate. In the long story of this Parliament, never has a Chancellor asked the British people to pay so much for so little. We're delighted to be joined by former Chief Secretary to the Treasury under Theresa May, David Gork, who served in various Treasury Minister roles under David Cameron and May, as well as being Justice Secretary and Work and Pensions Secretary. He resigned from the government in 2019 and lost the Tory party whip over Brexit and is now in his greatest role of all, a columnist for the New Statesman. 
Thanks so much for joining us to discuss the budget, David. First of all, what were your general impressions of it when you were watching it yesterday? I thought as a whole, it was uh, effective politically. Um, I think it raises some really interesting economic questions and some big questions about the future of the Conservative Party. I, I thought that what they would do, I mean, it was no surprise that there was some additional resources to play with, that the OBR has revised up its growth forecasts. And that meant that the Chancellor was in the happy position of deciding what to do with the extra money. Um, I didn't think he was going to cut taxes, and he didn't. What I thought he would do is use some of the money to deal with some of the political problems they've got, make sure that no departments face real-term cuts. And I've been one of those saying for quite a long time that I thought he would cut the taper rate for universal credit. But I thought he'd hold back quite a large chunk of it just in the event that the economy faces some uncertainty and so that he had the flexibility of cutting taxes uh, nearer the general election. But he spent more of the money than I expected. So it's more expansionary than I thought he would do. Yes, he's cut the taper rate. I thought he'd cut it from 63 to 60, and he's cut it all the way down to 55. Um, yes, he's stopped um, any departments facing real terms cuts. But in fact, yeah, he's gone a bit further than I thought he would have done. So it, he's kind of gambled, uh, particularly given his rhetoric about cutting taxes you know the next marginal pound will be will be in tax cuts is what he told the 1922 committee yeah he's making quite big promises on tax cuts and he's gambling on the obr revising up again their growth forecasts which may happen but if that doesn't happen then he's got a bit of a problem and in fact if the economy goes the other way then he's got a really big problem because he's not going to meet his fiscal rules. He hasn't left much of a buffer for future years. Uh, and then the politics of that get very, very difficult for him in particular. Yeah, that the, the interesting thing is what it really reminded me of in something it wasn't was this, what I think was the Hammond 2 budget. So, you know, the 2017, 2018 ones where, as you say, there was a lot of headroom than, than Hammond specifically left himself even when they had 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 uh, made a growth figures. Now, <clears throat> one of the other differences between it and Hammond too is, you know, watching up in the in the press gallery, the cheers from the Conservative side were a lot less fulsome throughout this budget. This was a budget which made lots of MPs quite uncomfortable. And you already alluded to that when you, you know, raised interesting questions about the direction of the Tory party. But what what do you as, you know, a yeah, kind of a yeah, well, I realise I don't know how you how you would self-identify now, but yeah, uh, what what did you make make of it uh, from from the kind of uh, yeah kind of Tory development perspective? Well, I think it was a sort of further shift along uh, the direction that the party's been going on for a little while, consistent with the realignment of British politics. The key voters in this country at the moment are the the the, the red wall voters who have previously voted Labour, probably went through a UKIP stage, then ended up with the Conservatives in 2019. And those are the voters that both the big parties are fighting over. They're by and large high spending voters and they'll tolerate higher taxes if it's going to things like the NHS. So I think it was kind of consistent with that. And I think it's dawning on more and more Conservative MPs that you know this is this is what they've done. They've 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 made a choice you don't want to dwell on it too much, but they've made a choice on Brexit that lowers economic growth. So, so that makes these decisions all the more acute. And they've made a choice politically to go after red wall voters in particular, which 
tends to lean towards higher spending. And, and, you know, I think this budget was rather a confirmation of that. You, You can't argue that taxes have gone up purely because of the pandemic and the reaction to that. And that, you know, that was the burning platform that the Chancellor had in March of this year. Now it's clearer that the pandemic doesn't look as if it's going to have you know, that significant a lasting effects on the economy. But he's not reversing those uh, tax increases. He's maintaining those and using the additional wriggle room that that creates to spend more. So I, I, you know, I, I think the Conservative Party is not completely reconciled to its new identity. But but that is kind of where it's going. I'm not sure the <laughs> Chancellor is entirely reconciled to that new identity, you know, given his sort of passionate and I think sincere uh, you know, statement of the value of limited government and the importance of low taxes. That's all very well. That's not what he's actually done, nor has he been you know, Hammond-esque in his desire to, to put, put plenty aside that he could potentially use as one way or the other, you know, either to ensure the public finances are strong if the economy doesn't grow so well, or if it does grow well, to put that into tax cuts. So yeah, it's an interesting one. I I, I don't think the Conservative Party is entirely reconciled to, to to where it is. I think I think its its leader is, but I don't think its chancellor is. And I, and I was struck just watching it on television. It was it was it was noticeable how quiet the Conservative backbenchers were, both in Rishi Sunak's speech, and actually I also thought Rachel Reeves was given a much uh, gentler time of it than, than, for example, Ed Balls was ever done. That's really interesting that you sort of saw this budget as a pitch to those red wall voters, because as the analysis of who wins and who loses has sort of shaken out this morning, the Institute for Fiscal Studies is warning that middle earners will actually be worse off next year because of rising costs and tax rises. Do you think that's a gamble for Rishi Sunak and could it have political consequences? Well, of course, the challenge for them is that, you know, we have got a period of time with inflation going up, costs are going up, the economy, uh, yes, is bouncing back. So at one level, it's growing fast, but from a very, very significant fall, you know, we're likely to see a tight time on living standards, whatever the government did, and, you know, where they've prioritised is the working poor with the universal credit taper reduction, which, as I say, I, I, th- I think is a sensible policy, by the way. I, I think there's there's nothing wrong with that. And they've focused, you know, if you look at what they're doing in the round on the NHS, and, and those are probably politically very well designed to, to, to appeal, but... You know they don't have the they don't have the ability to solve every problem, and there's bound to be a squeeze, and that that is one of the great challenges for for the government. And you know, get beyond the COVID recovery years, uh, our growth outlook continues to be you know, pretty unimpressive, and and you know whoever is in government, unless you can do something about that, you are going to be forced into making tough decisions either on spending or tax. I was in a government that made a lot of tough decisions on spending. This is a government that's making tough decisions on tax. That to me was the, yeah, you mentioned Rachel Reeves and the the subdued response, and I couldn't quite work out whether or not it was because the Conservative benches were sufficiently uncomfortable. And they're like, wait, is that a boo line? Are we, you you kind of tell that it was almost like she didn't quite know how to react, but they also didn't quite know how to react to her. But of course, the the thing this budget does, as you say, he's gambling and Labour are now gambling on the reverse, which is essentially, well, look, you're not going to get this wage growth. 
therefore you are going to end up in a situation where you have where you know instead of having these tax cuts you clearly like to have at the end of the parliament they instead have this quite painful sort of oh by the way we're either cutting things or or or, or there are more tax rises going into going into the election of course it is much harder it's much easier to say well we just get growth you know, back to pre-crisis levels than it is to actually do it obviously part of the political backdrop throughout your you know your time in government, and and I would argue probably one of the reasons why the various unexpected, in inverted commas, electoral shocks of the last decade haven't, has been this very stagnant and sluggish wage growth that we've had since the financial crisis and, and indeed a, a little bit before. What do you think is the underlying cause of stagnant wage growth? I know it's a bit like, you know, solve solve the British economy in <laughs> two minutes, but, you know. Yeah, good. I mean, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's a good question. I mean, you know, fundamentally, this does come down to productivity, so how can you improve productivity? And as a country, you know, we've really struggled with that. And you know, what is very clear from the OBR's assessment that is that Brexit is having a very significant effect on that. And in the end, that does come down to to, to wage growth. You know, I, I, I think in terms of how do you improve productivity, which I think is the underlying question to, to wage growth, you know, that is about attracting and increasing investment that is about making us a more skilled uh, nation these are sort of long-term challenges i think it's it's an issue in which neither of the parties have really got a, a a strong answer yet but i i suspect that over the next year or two the argument about you know, how do we get economic growth how do we improve productivity will become a bigger question for the country and I think there will be more focus on that uh, and as I say I don't think the government have got much of an answer to it I, I, and in many respects they're taking us in in my view in the wrong direction I don't think I think the Labour Party is sort of edging towards the critique you know, I thought you know striking how Pat McFadden said well you know we've got high taxes because we've got low growth um, but but I don't think Labour have yet got an answer as to how you deliver that higher growth. I mean, the big worry that I think all of us must have is, is this kind of what happens after you get to a certain point in the economy that, you know, that the once an economy reaches a certain size, um, you have diminishing levels of, of, of growth, it becomes harder to grow, grow an economy. And that that's the sort of big fear, because if that's the case, then, you know, that's that might be where we are for for decades, um, which is which is a which is a real worry. But you know, maybe there is more that we can do on skills. Maybe there is more to attract investment. Maybe there is more to to increase trade, which is a driver for productivity. But that takes us back to the sort of Brexit issue, and not, we've got not got a government that's going to reverse what it's done on Brexit, and we've got a, a Labour Party that's frightened to talk about the subject. And the so-called rabbit out of the hat, even though there were hints of it beforehand, is being characterised as the lower taper rate for universal credit. And uh, you've spoken to us before about this subject, having been one of the every former DWP secretary since 2010 to have opposed uh, taking away that £20 a week uplift that was introduced at the beginning of the pandemic. That £20 a week cut is staying. And actually, the Resolution Foundation has calculated that about three quarters of, of claimants will still be worse off as a result of the decision to take that money away. What do you make of that 
decision? I know you've said that you sort of support the the lower taper rate, but what do you make of the decision to keep that cut in place? Well, actually, if you the the letter that uh, all of the former Conservative DWP secretaries uh, signed actually did say that you didn't necessarily need to keep it exactly the same design because the the, the uplift was a fairly crude policy necessary at the time to get money out the door quickly, but you know certainly. Um, yeah, I mean, my, certainly my view was that a combination of, of cutting the taper rate and increasing work allowances would have been a better policy, wouldn't have necessarily compensated everybody exactly for that, that £20 a week uh, uplift. But I think that would have been a, 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 you know, a better policy. They've done a lot of that. I mean, interestingly, that it's all been put into the, pretty well all put into the taper rate rather than rather than work allowances. I think you could have had a, a different balance. But there's there's a curious thing about the, the, the taper rate cut because it is higher spending. You know, it is it is more on the welfare budget, but lots of conservatives, lots on the right, still consider it to be a tax cut because because it sort of is, you know, because in terms of how much money do you keep for each extra pound you, you, you earn. Uh, and in those circumstances, this is a way of both increasing spending and cutting taxes at the same time. And you can you can pick and choose your argument. And it's interesting that the, listening to the chancellor this morning, and indeed in his speech uh, on Budget Day itself, yeah, this is this is a first step towards cutting taxes. He's presenting it as a as a tax cut, even though this is you know, strictly speaking, uh, extra public spending. Yeah, the extra public spending, because one of the the really interesting thing about this budget, although I think it's probably unsurprising, you know, given how low Gavin Williamson's stock was before he was sacked, was how badly the DfE has done compared to, yeah, they're basically, they have a spending, real-term spending increase. But if you were, yeah, if, in terms of all of the spending departments, they've clearly come last. The government still has is still going to respond to the auger review at some point later down the line and of course tuition fees are another kind of weird thing where it's both public spending and a tax rise what do you make of what i think of as the kind of weird rise of of sort of taxes which aren't quite taxes so tuition fees the universal credit taper rate do you think then as the parliamentary party gets increasingly anxious about where it's got to on tax do you think that will kind of spread to a sort of as it already has with uc will spread to a kind of wider sense of oh actually we've got a graduate tax oh actually we've got this taper rate tax and or do you think that um it will con- then the sort of tax anxiety will continue to be kind of focused around you know this new social care levy income tax ni and, and you know the sort of traditional levers yeah i think it'll, it'll focus more on the traditional levers i mean i, I you yeah, know i think i think conservative mps will be supportive of the the cut in the taper rate even though it's you know, higher spending. You know, I think they 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 will accept the argument that this is about the the, the additional marginal pound and the behavioural impact uh, that that will have. So I think that will be a popular move. I think you know, tuition fees. I mean, that's a, it's a curious one because it really is a, a, a graduate tax, but it's not called a graduate tax, and 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 gets into political problems because it's not called a graduate tax. But you know, I I I I don't see that as a sort of likely to be a sort of particular priority issue for Conservative MPs one way or the other. And as for education spending, yeah, it's an interesting one, and whether that was partly as a consequence of of, of Gavin Williamson, I suspect there's a bit of Treasury scepticism that additional resources will make that much difference. 
uh, and um, you know whether that's fair or not, uh, I, I'm not sure. Uh, it, it's also the case that you know so much you know, on the on the really big budgets, you know, so much is going into the NHS. That is, I think, that is the biggest vulnerability for the government, which they are seeing off. I think, uh, at least, they'll hope that they're seeing off. Which is with all the pressures because of COVID and, and 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 so on, and the backlog that is there, if they fight the next election with the NHS in crisis, that is where they are they are most vulnerable. So they're doing everything they can to prevent that from happening. It's why I'm somewhat sceptical that the money that is supposedly going to social care will end up with social care. You know, it is it is keep the NHS on its feet at all costs. I think that is the number one priority for the government at the moment for good electoral reasons. That's really interesting stuff. Thanks so much, David. And I hope you'll stick with us for our second section. Look forward to it. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. You sounded more enthusiastic than Stephen, so uh, I appreciate that. I never had to do this when I was Lord Chancellor. <laughs> Sorry for degrading you in this way. Downgraded <laughs> for Robert Jenrick, and now I'm doing cool things. Right, stop. Our question today is a really interesting one. Why did the Tories vote to keep polluting rivers and beaches with sewage? Is there a more effective symbolic issue out there for Lib Dem leaflets across the blue wall? So this is a reference to a story that gathered pace last weekend of 265 MPs voting with the government to reject an amendment that the Lords had put onto the Environment Bill to stop water companies from dumping raw sewage into rivers. And you could see it had spooked Conservative MPs, couldn't you, as they kind of realised <laughs> what they'd voted for and, and scrambled to make their arguments that actually they would say there were enough mitigations in place and it would have been too expensive to force water companies to make those changes immediately. David, obviously you represented part of Hertfordshire and I wonder how you feel about the sort of blue wall aspect to this question. Do you think this is something that would have exercised your voters? Oh yes, yeah, and in fact, it you know it it, it does. I, I represented Southwest Hertfordshire and I continued to live there and I'm a relatively short walk away from the River Chess 
And you know, it has been an issue talked about for some months uh, of sewage discharges into the River Chess, which is, you know, it's a, it's a lovely river and it's a lovely walk. Don't all rush at once to come walk <laughs> alongside it because the peace and quiet is, is, is much appreciated. But, you know, it's a beautiful spot just outside London. But, you know, the water has been filthy for much of the last few months. And it's because of um, sewage discharges um, further uh, upstream. And no, it's a, it's a complete nightmare for Conservative MPs. Uh, I mean, to sort of answer the question, how do they get themselves sort of into this position? You know, I, I actually do have a degree of sympathy here because, you know, this is a big problem that goes back to you know our design of sewers and a sort of combination that we have both you know household waste and uh, you know runoff uh, waters go into the same sewers. Um, if we have heavy rain, our system at, at the sewage treatment plants can't cope, and you know we end up releasing raw sewage into rivers. And you know with increased development. And uh, with heavier rainfall as a consequence of climate change, this has become a bigger problem. Voting to you know, ban water companies from doing this is all very well, but it doesn't. You know, legislating doesn't actually solve the problem. You've got to do some things, and those things are going to need to be done. But they're potentially hugely expensive, and you know, well, you need sort of you know, one hundred and fifty billion to six hundred billion pounds. There's ultimately going to need to be spent on this as as we sort of change our whole drainage system. That's a sort of big problem, and you know that that's that's a lot of money to spend as a consequence of a of a House of Lords amendment. So you're sort of stuck between a, you know, understandable sort of public outrage that their you know beautiful local rivers, uh, you know, filled with filled with sewage. At the same time, the solution to it is really expensive and will take some time. And that's not to say it shouldn't be done. It's just you, you, you can't click your fingers and the problem's gone away. Um, but yeah, it's a, it's a political gift to Liberal Democrats to say, well, you know, your, you know, your local Tories have voted against it. And, and you know, this is the MP that is in favour <laughs> of raw sewage being into the, the, the river chess or, or whatever river it might be. So, so it's a bit of a nightmare. Do you think that damage has been done then? It did have a sort of element of a viral story. It was very big on social, social media. And I wonder if, yes, that reputation, reputational damage has been done in the same way as sort of, you know, the Tories are selling off our, our forests. And, and so then, you know, no longer the custodians or conservators of our natural environment. So you've got a sort of spike of interest, but this hasn't come, you know, from nowhere. So, so people have been, you know, it, I can tell you that the people of Chorley Wood have been talking about this issue for some months uh, and they will continue to do so every time there's heavy rain, every time more raw sewage is released. And, you know, unless the government can come up with a kind of convincing story as to, you know, one, why this isn't an easy problem to solve, but two, this is all the stuff that we are doing and working with the water companies. You know, they've got to have a, you know, even if it's a long-term plan, they've got to have a plan. And so at the end of this, if this is, you know, if this has kind of forced everybody into taking it seriously, then that is a, that is a good thing. It probably won't be the big issue come the next general election. 
but but it needs to be neutralized for the conservatives and that does mean having some kind of credible plan as to you know why this isn't going to happen forever and ever yeah what i also thought was interesting about it was as you say it's a lot of money to spend for a, a lord's amendment but it was you know this cross-party thing organized by those various camp- campaigners had a lot of conservative support in the lords it felt like it's interesting because Anushi referenced Selling Forest, a kind of classic, a new government's arrived, some, someone's turned up in a department and they've been gone, oh, well, we can save money doing this. Oh, wait, I've done something politically and I would really regret <laughs> Whereas the thing I thought was really interesting is the kind of thing that an old government does, right? In the, <clears throat> yeah, had Nicky de Costa saying, oh, the House of Lords has become a house of opposition rather than a revising chamber, which I'm not quite sure what the difference in practice between being a house of opposition and a revising chamber is. Is it if you're a house of opposition, you go to ping pong twice, whereas if you're a revising chamber... I mean, it doesn't... It it, it felt... What I found interesting is it felt like very much a kind of sort of long-term government-itis, this kind of, well, we can't just accept this. Because as you, as you say, right, the amendment they've now you turned on doesn't in of itself do anything unless... At some point, there's more money for infrastructure to fix the problem. And I guess what I'm kind of circling out in a sort of roundabout follow-up question is, one of the weird things about this government is this way that it's both old and new. Yeah, how can the sort of... And the relationship between it and the Lords is clearly quite bad. How can that relationship be fixed? Or do you think that's just a kind of artefact of everything that happened during Brexit, the fact that the government's been in power for a long time, the fact that this is the first time the Conservative government hasn't had a reliable majority in the Lords, and therefore that's particularly sort of strange for this Downing Street, in a way it perhaps wasn't in the coalition years and it wasn't under New Labour. Yeah, I don't know, it's, it's the hassle, it's almost an irregular verb, isn't it? You know, we are a revising chamber, you are a chamber of opposition. <laughs> but the relationship isn't great because you know, quite a lot of the I mean, for a start, the Conservatives don't have a majority there. Quite a lot of the Conservative peers who are there and are, are not necessarily hugely in sympathy with Boris Johnson and the sort of direction that he has taken uh, the Conservative Party. So you've got a problem there. And I, and I think you have got a, a government that is particularly allergic to any kind of opposition. You know, so anyone telling them that they can't do precisely what they want. So whether that is the courts or the EU or the House of Lords, you know, they react very, very strongly to to anything that kind of gets in the way of them doing whatever they want to do. And I can't quite see how that is going to be easily solved. I I don't see any appetite from the government for Lords reform, um, which which would um, cause mayhem on the backbenchers. Conservative MPs hate the idea of 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 giving or many of them do of giving the Lords some kind of democratic legitimacy they're not going to do that you wonder if on circumstances the prime minister might be tempted to kind of appoint a vast numbers of new members of the house of lords but that would be a very uh, dramatic um, and controversial acts and to some extent make the problem worse with the existing members of the house of lords so uh, you know i don't think he's going to kind of threatened to be a Lloyd George type type figure on, on that. And I just think it's one of those ones that the government is going to have to manage. And I don't think there's an easy solution with that. You know, the Lords don't push these things you know, very, very far. And in the end, a government with a majority gets its way. But you know, it, I think the government's just going to have to live with the fact that you know, sometimes it gets its way, but it, on a roundabout way. And 
that's that's part of government. And just one last question on this. This particular example showed how vulnerable, particularly the governing party is of embarrassing itself ahead of COP. And I just wonder whether you think that that has been a particular particular vulnerability for Conservative MPs in particular recently. Well, I think particularly, I mean, it comes back a little bit to the to the budget, the combination of both cost of living problems and COP all sort of emerging at the same time. So you end up with, I mean, no surprise that fuel duty is frozen you know, once again. It's not really a cost of living point, but, you know, air passenger duty on internal flights. You know, the, the budget was not very COP focused by any means. And COP, well, it, the environment is a really difficult issue, I think, for the Conservative Party because of the nature of its coalition. You know, one set of voters who will be much more focused on cost of living and on jobs and, you know, wanting to bring more manufacturing jobs back, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have still got, it's not as significant a part of the Conservative coalition as it was, but the kind of more, you know, the sort of middle class graduates living in the southeast of England and, you know, other sort of commuter parts of the country that that worry a great deal about climate change. And I think their instincts are really quite difficult. And at the moment, the, the, the government is sort of holding it all together with lots of big promises about, well, this is all about jobs and so on. I, I just think in the end, if you're really serious about reducing carbon emissions, there are some quite difficult decisions you have to make on carbon taxes and um, carbon border adjustment mechanisms, which all get paid by consumers in the end. But that's really hard to do when you're, you're really focused on cost of living. Uh, and, and holding that all together over a sustainable period would be quite hard. If you duck those choices, then in the end, you know, you are going to be very vulnerable for not you know, taking it seriously. And that may come to a head just in the next couple of weeks with 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 COP. So I think that's, that's one to watch. I think it's a I think it's a I think it's a knotty problem for the government in keeping its coalition coalition together on, on, on these issues. It's really interesting. David Gork, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. So this podcast is out a day earlier than usual, so you can get our reaction to the budget while it's hot. Subscribers, of course, get the podcast a day early as a matter of course. So if you've enjoyed getting the NS podcast a whole day earlier, subscribe to The New Statesman. You've been listening to The New Statesman podcast with me, Anoush Shikelian, and my colleague Stephen Bush. We're produced by Adrian Bradley, and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks so much for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. 
seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.